Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille, and I'm talking from the Alan Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. It's probably worth a closer count, but I think Pierre Trudeau is easily the most written about Prime Minister of Canada. He easily beats Mackenzie King and Laurier, that's for sure. Perhaps Sir John A. Macdonald can still give him a run for his money. And it seems that while political history is not particularly hot in academia, it's still attracting some younger scholars. One of them is Christo Avalis, who is adjunct professor of history at the Royal Military College. He's just published a study of Trudeau's thinking, and it's entitled The Constant Liberal, Pierre Trudeau, Organized Labour, and the Canadian Democratic Left. It's published by the University of British Columbia Press. We reached Dr. Avalis at his office in Kingston. Christo Avalis, welcome to the mic. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, Pierre Trudeau's thinking has been analyzed to death, I would have thought. What attracted you to this topic? There's really two broad camps that have examined Trudeau at the kind of book-length level, at least, at least in English Canada. And the kind of fringe one is that, you know, Trudeau is a secretive communist, you know. That's largely outside of academia, but there are notable works published by Bob Lamondon, uh, among other, that's the most recent one. Make that argument that Trudeau was a you know a secret socialist or communist, and that he had this goal of transforming Canada and captured the Liberal Party and and so on. More more I guess mainstream and generally the the opinion I would say of of, of most academic scholars of Trudeau and also a lot of you know professional journalistic histories of Trudeau was that he was a kind of pragmatic progressive who started off as a kind of social democrat or democratic socialist, whatever you want to call him, and then eventually moved to liberalism, not because he wasn't progressive, but because he thought that was the only way to solve Canada's biggest issues, and that he is Canada's uh, you know, savior in some ways. He was the, the man who built the modern Canada that we all identify with, mm-hmm. and there was this kind of like progressive vision of Trudeau. And, and in my view, it was... My, my perspective is more that, you know, Trudeau from his early years, from, you know, his young adulthood, which is why I started in 1945, um, really encapsulated a kind of small L liberalism in Canada. And while that during his younger years led him to, you know, make alliances with the CCF and with trade unions, you know, with, with, the, the, with the left broadly defined, by the time he's prime minister, the left is the key enemy to his vision of Canada, which is to, you know, empower business, to raise productivity without raising wages, to drive down the expectations of working people, to build a charter of rights and freedoms that is predominantly, you know, liberal in its nature, Mm pro-capital in its nature, and to really set the stage um, for the neoliberal revolution that Trudeau doesn't start, but that is impossible without his intellectual frameworks and, and, and leading the stage for Mulroney and Chrétien and Martin in the, in the, you know, the generation to follow. Reading your book, I was often reminded of a work by James Laxer and Robert Laxer. It was a book published in 1977 called The Liberal Idea of Canada, Pierre Trudeau and the Question of Canada's Survival. It was a book that uh, I, hadn't, I hadn't opened in a long, long time, and I even discovered there was a chapter in that book on right-wing populism in the United States. But I come back to the Laxers, and they, these were both very strong, as you know, very strong New Democrats, and they were despairing at the lost promise of Trudeau. You read that book. I read that book as sort of the the uh, the New Democratic hopelessness in, in front of uh, what Trudeau was doing. This is in 1977. Do you see yourself in that same Laxer tradition? I mean, not necessarily. I see myself maybe more as a David Lewis person in some ways, right? Um, 
Laxers have a very interesting uh, position with Trudeau. As you note, this book in 1977 is actually quite excellent. As you note, there's a lot of perceptive things on right-wing populism that I don't touch on in my research, but that um, sort of is is prophetic in some ways about what we're seeing today happening in, in Canada and the U.S. But for me, the book had great value because it really highlighted how Trudeau ran on this optimism and then, you know, after seeking power, took a more pessimistic tone. Yes. And it notes the kind of complications of liberalism. Yes. And this is something I note in my book is that Trudeau, on the one hand, realizes that the Liberal Party sort of needs optimism to win. And that liberalism, small L liberalism, is represented both by the Liberal and Conservative parties, um, is, is based on this optimism. It has to be, at least hypothetically, based on this idea that the people uh, are wise and that you know we, we progress is inevitable and we're moving towards that progress and you know so on and so forth yet in 1977 Trudeau has already by this point done major campaigns against the expectations of working people saying that uh, working class people and middle class people are too greedy in this country mm-hmm. that they need to work longer hours and accept lower wages and then by 1977 the wage and price control uh, scheme uh, which did not control prices to any meaningful degree, but which was very successful at controlling wages, was 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 well underway. It kind of ran from 1975, 76 to 78. So it is an interesting time. The yes. Laxers, though, are r- rather quite interesting because in some ways they, they become more supportive of Trudeau uh, in the early 1980s as uh, he adopts the National Energy Program. Right. Uh, Laxers, well, J- James Laxer would also sort of side with Trudeau in his attacks on unions, as it, odd as it sounds, yes. saying that unions needed to become more productive so that the Canadian economy could better compete with the U.S. And Robert Laxer would become a kind of uh, somewhat secret advisor to, to Pierre Trudeau. The Laxers are very interesting, and so is the Waffle in that yes. um, they, they rather, I think, the, the narrative of the Waffle that's existed for so long is that they were to the left of the mainstream NDP, and I don't necessarily know if that's true. I think that the democratic socialism of David Lewis and, and Ed Broadbent and, and Tommy Douglas was every bit as strident as those in the waffle, and that it was mostly a conflict of personality. So this is an interesting book in that sense. Well, but, and you know what? Yeah. Maybe you're going to write your next book on this topic. <laughs> yeah. Let's get back to Trudeau. You start your book uh, with 1945, um, he's at Harvard University at that point, as I recall. What's his state of mind? He's, he's coming out of Quebec. Um, the war has ended. There's a new Trudeau, it seems, that is, uh, that is nascent here. Yeah, no, certainly. And I mean, the, the work to look here is that Max and Monique Nemney, they wrote a, a book on Trudeau, basically his youth, like his, his childhood and young adulthood, kind of prior to leaving Quebec. And there the narrative is that Trudeau is actually something of a nationalist, uh, mm-hmm. odd as it sounds, right? Trudeau is a nationalist. He has sympathies to, uh, to, to fascism, in a sense, not necessarily uh, Nazi fascism, but certainly the, the fascism kind of... Uh, the right-wing authoritarianism, yes. Yeah, certainly the, in Italy and Spain, mm-hmm. the ones infused with Catholic, uh, you know, a certain Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Uh, Trudeau also has elements of anti-Semitism. Uh, and so he, he leaves Quebec... And he sees these new opportunities, these new ways of thinking at Harvard. And that's where I argue that he becomes a kind of liberal, which is why I start more or less in 1945. And, you know, I fill in the earlier context here and there, but that's where I start. Most people would argue that that's where he becomes a, a social democrat or democratic socialist. I argue that's where he becomes a liberal and he stays a liberal for the remainder of his life. And that's kind of a key 
a, a key point. And when, when Trudeau goes back to Quebec, he kind of sees it as responsibility to sort of bring the new perspective he got at Harvard and then in London and in Paris and bring that back to Quebec, which he saw as, you know, trapped in the Middle Ages. What shaped his thinking, do you think? Was it his background? Was it his readings? Or was it the people that he met along the way after he left the province? I mean, I think all of those play a role. I mean, his background, I think, shapes his way of thinking. And I think in some ways Trudeau is reacting to himself, seeing how he was in the, in the, in, in the context he grew up in and wanting to kind of disassociate himself with that, which is like the nationalism, certain amounts of xenophobia and intolerance. And that's how Trudeau, I think, at least hypothetically, kind of donned his, his cosmopolitan image. And in terms of his readings, it's certainly the case that I think that uh, reading from the left certainly gave him a new perspective. He became a big fan of Harold Lasky. Tell, uh, me, Lasky tell, tell, me, tell us about that. What is the impact of Harold Lasky? Tell us who Harold Lasky was. So Harold Lasky was the famous British intellectual. He was a professor at the London School of Economics. But in addition to that, he also played a fairly direct role in the Labour Party and, uh, of Britain. And in a sense, um, Trudeau would be Trudeau's PhD supervisor. Now, Trudeau never really like, started the PhD. I mean, he, he is formally enrolled, but there was no dissertation. He never finished, certainly. But Lasky would have been his supervisor uh, in, that, in that process. Lasky wrote a book in the 1920s called A Grammar of Politics, which is a very left-wing book, but you could see how it would be applicable to liberals in some ways, because it talks a bit about you know, the need to put the individual's freedom above all. It's just from Lasky's perspective, that requires the, you know, the, the subordinance of capital to the state, because you know, capital inhibits uh, the freedom of many for the uh, freedom of few, right? So it's, it's one of those arguments, but Trudeau would sort of be really inspired by Lasky, but not just Lasky. He'd be inspired by a lot of English-Canadian intellectuals, most of whom were on the left. People like Frank Scott and Eugene Forsey would be quite influential on Trudeau through their writings, but also in a kind of mentorship role. Frank Scott, of course, uh, professor of law at McGill University. Uh, Eugene Forsey, a uh, key thinker inside the labor uh, movement in, in Canada. Certainly, yeah. He eventually would become the dean of law at McGill. He was also a famous poet. Uh, and was one of the drafters of the Regina Manifesto. In 1933, yes. Yeah, yeah. And so um, he, he played a big role in influencing Trudeau, specifically both were Anglo-Montrealers and the CCF, both, like Trudeau, concerned with the state of civil liberty mm -hmm. in Quebec. Um, and so Trudeau formed a lot of these alliances based on the fact that when, when push came to shove in pre-Quiet Revolution Quebec, um, the Liberal Party wasn't necessarily of much help, so when Trudeau looked for allies to promote civil liberties, he found them in the labor movement, and he found them in a lot of CCF partisans. Right. You know, so few of them as there were, they were still sort of almost always intertwined in the civil libertarian movement. And, and Eugene Forsey, as you know, was a, was a scholar in his own right, but for various reasons never secured kind of permanent academic employment right. and would become the kind of research officer for the Canadian Congress of Labor, right. I think, in 1942 when they, when they created their research department. Now, you're depicting a Trudeau who's um, coming back to Canada. So he spent some time at the London School of Economics, but as you say, uh, was never particularly serious about pursuing an academic uh, career. I mean, he already has a law degree. He does have a master's degree from Harvard. Uh, he'll dabble a little bit in Paris, but he comes back and, and 
announces himself really as a supporter of labor in the late 1940s. He will uh, offer his legal services to the strikers at Asbestos uh, in 1949. He'll edit a book a few years later on the Asbestos strike. So you really do see him as a social democrat, as somebody who's flirting with the CCF in the 1950s? Well, a couple things there. Trudeau did want an academic career, but as you know, because he had his law degree, it was probably felt that he would write. He, he was, I think, aiming to be a professor of law. And he eventually would get a position as such in the, in the early 1960s before he would eventually go on to, to, you know, to electoral politics. But, uh, and he was actually offered a position at Queen's. Oh, really? Late 1940s, early 1950s. I, I think I note this either in my book or the dissertation. But Trudeau did want to stay in Quebec. Um, the reality with Trudeau is that, he, yes, he, he comes back to Quebec and he sees it uh, in the very much the, the kind of liberal mythology of the Quiet Revolution as an absolutely oppressive society, that Duplessis is this tyrant, that, that the, Quebec is unique amongst Canada in that there's a lack of civil liberty, democratic rights, etc. And it is his responsibility and the responsibility of people like him, of his generation. Gérald Pelletier and Jean Marchand would talk in much the same way. You know, the, the other two... The, the other two-thirds of the three jobs are the three wise men. Yes. They would speak in these terms. So Trudeau comes back to Quebec, and again, he finds no allies amongst his fellow liberals, the small-l liberals, but he finds allies amongst the social democratic left and amongst the labor movement. And so my argument is that Trudeau actually remains liberal, and there's actually remarks Trudeau made. Uh, it's, this is noted in, in, in other works, talking to him, where he in the 1940s basically saying, when I do enter politics, it will be as a liberal. But he says, for the moment now, the only people talking about civil liberty in the province, the only people opposing the Padlock Act, and the only people talking about how Jehovah's Witnesses are being persecuted, those are CCFers, right? right. And those are, those are trade unions. We're talking about Thérèse Casgrain, among yes, others? Yes, Thérèse Casgrain, um, you know, the, the people in the Fédération des Unions Industrielles de Québec, which would become the kind of, which would be one of the two founding parts to the FTQ, these kind of groups, and a lot of the Anglo CCFers in Montreal, a lot of the uh, English trade unionists in Montreal would be part of this, this group of progressives that would, that would try to be pushing here. Now, the reason they failed in politics, obviously, there's many reasons. One is that the CCF in Quebec was very, very Anglophone and in a province that is, you know, very, very Francophone. Yes. And so it created real difficulties in that sense. But uh, Trudeau did find a lot of friendships and alliances and influences in that group, even though I argue he was never ideologically one of them. But he's grazing, so to speak. He's grazing, he's grazing in the political fields, he's grazing in the ideological fields of the province and trying to find inspiration and support. Certainly. And you can see this, Trudeau is trying to figure out this vision before 1956, Trudeau is convinced that, you know, the Quebec Liberal Party is broken. Obviously, he doesn't support Maurice Duplessis and the Union Nationale, but he thinks that the Quebec Liberal Party is broken, um, that the CCF in Quebec, uh, what they would eventually call the Parti Social-Democratique, but it was always affiliated to the CCF, um, that was the only way forward for the Quebec broad progressive movement, whether it was social democratic or liberal, and that he felt that, you know, building that strength between the intellectual class and between um, the, the industrial working class would be the ticket forward uh, to, to building a political alliance. After 1956, um, where all of this work had been done, and yet Duplessis still won another massive majority, Trudeau sort of felt the, the, the option now was to build a new political movement. And he would start the Rassemblement des Forces Démocratiques, and then he would start, the, you know, basically a so yeah, Rassemblement, and then he would start a Union des Forces Démocratiques, mm -hmm. which would basically be 
the first one, a kind of educational movement bringing together all all non-Duplessis forces. And then the latter, which never really took off, was Trudeau trying to start a political party that would effectively merge the liberals and the NDP in Quebec in an opposition. So you see him, you see him moving sort of from a, a soft left of center towards the center at that point? Is that what you're saying? Well, I'm saying like, in terms of strategy, yes. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. saying ideologically he hasn't changed. Right. What's changed is his strategy, right? Trudeau, Trudeau again, was very convinced that he was always a small L liberal, I'd make the case for, mm-hmm. but that the only party, even though the, the only party standing for small L liberal values uh, was the CCF. Right. After 1956, he sees a couple things. He, one, he sees that the CCF likely won't be winning anytime soon in Quebec. And two, he sees that the Liberal Party is starting to offer reforms. And you do see the Liberal Party shifting a little bit in the mid-1950s. They're less complicit to Duplessis as they were prior to that. Mm-hmm. And Trudeau, I think, is encouraged by that action. Um, Trudeau also has some concerns with the CCF broadly. Uh, it's, rather, it's rather ironic. The CCF, uh, prior to 1950, 60 in Trudeau's view was far too centralist in its approach and yes. ignored Quebec's distinct nature. Yes. Yet when the NDP would start to recognize Quebec's distinct nature, he would he would harangue them for that in the early 1960s. That, that certainly would be a huge breaking point for him, wouldn't it? Yes, but I thought, and again, my argument was that it was something of a disjuncture from Trudeau. Because again, the, the, if you wanted a, 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 you know, a CCF that didn't uh, kowtow to Quebec nationalists, that was the party for you in the 1950s. Right. But if you wanted a, a, an NDP sympathetic to Quebec's distinct cultural and economic and social values. That's what you got when the NDP recognized Quebec as a distinct society. And yet Trudeau did not like that either. And, and part of me thinks Trudeau would just be, was unhappy regardless of what the left did in regards to Quebec, because by that point, he was not on the left, even even in a fellow traveler sense, mm-hmm. but had migrated more purely into liberal camp. Now, let's fast forward a little bit to 1968. Of course, uh, Trudeau joins cabinet in 1965 uh, under uh, Pearson as prime minister. He's a chosen leader of the liberals in March or April 1968, becomes elected prime minister in June of 1968. How do you see him on the spectrum? I mean, he made a lot of promises uh, in terms of social justice, the just society, but he also was quite right-wing in many of his very conservative, I'd say, uh, in his promises of 1968. How do you situate him on the ideolo- on the ideological spectrum at that point? Let's say 68 to 72. Yeah, I mean, in, in the broad sense, you'd say that he's probably a, something of a centrist in his own liberal party, which I generally, historically and contemporary, classify as a center-right party, you would probably say he would be leaning left in his party. And I think that's a fairly consistent perspective, that Trudeau is usually to the left of fellow liberal MPs, uh, both when, when he was, uh, you know, just an MP himself, and then also when he's, when he's, when he's prime minister. Uh, and I think that's, that, that, that carries through much of his term. Uh, at this period, you're right in noting that on the one hand, the rhetoric of the just society, the rhetoric around social issues in particular, was very progressive. Yet, on other ways, you know, Trudeau would say, you know, the government isn't the Santa Claus and people's expectations are too high. And in some ways, he, he sounded quite conservative. And I think that was him trying to simultaneously uh, demonstrate that he is a new kind of exciting politician aiming to kind of win the support of this new young generation, yet at the same time signaling both through what he says, but also who he is, the, a very wealthy man with an elite education from the kind of Laurentian elite, if we want to use that term, sure. you know, who will not scare Bay Street. 
this isn't Tommy Douglas. You know, this isn't Tommy <laughs> Douglas like actually talking about no. we're going to nationalize parts of the economy and we're going to democratize the economy. We're looking to examples from Sweden and West Germany and Yugoslavia to do so. And that's going to terrify, you know, the capitalist elite. Pierre Trudeau uh, is making pains to kind of say, look, I, I'm feigning progressive, but like, look, at the end of the day, I got your back. I got your back, fellow fellow one percenter. <laughs> now, in um, in seventy two, I mean, he's really tested. The, again, to remind, remind our listeners, nineteen seventy two, a liberal government is reelected, but with a minority. He is totally dependent on the NDP for support. Strikes some sort of an agreement with David Lewis, uh, who's the leader of the NDP at the time. How is his personal struggle between the left and uh, the right managed through those difficult years of seventy two to seventy four? Well, there's a few factors in the broad sense, and this is actually captured both through the general research I did, but also uh, after they had both kind of left politics in the early 1990s, Ed Broadbent and, and Pierre Trudeau would sit down for an interview, and it was, uh, you know, you have transcripts of these things in some cases. And what Trudeau would often say is that he could use the left, um, which he was, ne- again, I argue he was never a part of, to put pressure on his own party at times. So, for instance, when Trudeau felt there needed to be some kind of gesture leftward, he would often face a lot of opposition within his own party, uh, in his own cabinet, in his mm-hmm. own caucus. Um, but Trudeau could always say, if we don't do this, the NDP is going to get the momentum. Right. So we need to do it. We don't have to do it like the NDP would do it. But if we do half of what the NDP would do, the Canadian people won't be able to tell the difference, and, and, we'll, and we'll, we've cut, undercut them, and we're just going to make gestures uh, leftward. So Trudeau would often say things like, you know, he would say that Broadbent basically, and I'm paraphrasing here, but saying like, you know, I would go to my buddies in, in caucus and say, well, you know, we have to we have to ensure that the NDP doesn't get momentum, so we have to move a little bit leftward on this issue. And Trudeau was also concerned about um, the the context of the Liberal Party in England sort of fading away. Of course, the Liberal Democrats still exist, right. but he always worried about what happened in BC where the NDP became the second party, or what happened in. Um, other provinces where the Liberal Party sort of faded away is when they became uh, too open in their ideology. Mm-hmm. The ideology wasn't wrong, but they didn't mask it well enough. And then that allowed the, the stark choice between you know, the, the rise of social democratic parties to become the number two party. And in some ways, Pierre Trudeau is really like Mackenzie King in that way, you know, the savior of Canadian small L liberalism, because he you know, was able to kind of co-opt NDP forces. And this is also being shown through a lot of uh, advisors, David Kovarnik, who's a kind of political scientist uh, who wrote a lot about unions and pressure groups and whatnot, did a sort of private report for Trudeau and the Liberals in the kind of 70s and early 80s. Um, and he basically said something along the lines of the goal of the Liberal Party is to uh, steal NDP policy, but not necessarily implement it, force the NDP to either agree with you or adopt policies that may be seen beyond the political mainstream. Well, it's so certainly Trudeau was definitely part of that. Yeah, it's certainly part of the liberal magic to be able to speak on the, to speak on the left and and govern on the right. Um, I mean, if you look at if you look at the federal spending as a share of the GDP uh, through the 1970s, I mean, it's it it, it climbs from roughly 1972 uh, right through to 1977. 
um, a huge increase in the in federal spending again as a share of the gross domestic product of Canada. Um, but then it slows down dramatically in the late 1970s because to remember the words of J.J. Uh, Magdanell, the Auditor General of Canada at the time, you know, Canada, the, the government of Canada has lost control of its of its budget. So you see a massive retrenchment in, in budgeting uh, at the federal level starting in 77, 78. And then again in the 1980s, a dramatic climb in the early 1980s, a dramatic climb uh, in federal spending responding in part to the 1981 recession. Um, and it's, it's, it's quite dramatic uh, in those last four years of the Liberal government. At the end of the day, um, I mean, it, was Trudeau that much different from most governments in the West? We see, we do see, and you have to recognize that we, I mean, there is a tremendous improvement made in the standard of living of Canadians through the 19, late 1960s and through the 1970s and early 80s. Was Trudeau all that different from other countries in the OECD, do you think? This is one of the things that's, like, tempered my analysis in a way, is that Trudeau is, you know, one leader. Of course, a Canadian prime minister with a majority government is among the most powerful leaders in a democratic, in any democratic society. A lot of people have criticized the amount of power a majority prime minister has had, say, relative to a U.S. president. Mm -hmm. Has much more checks and balances, even when his party controls both, both houses. You can see even Donald Trump with an absolute majority in all three branches uh, had difficulty passing even some of his key campaign promises. Sure. You know, the Canadian prime ministers have no such barriers or premiers. You see Doug Ford uh, has very little in the way of stopping him in terms of implementing his program, even if that wasn't part of his mandate. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, is that, um, you know, you only have so much sway in a global economy. And part of this is being driven by global trends, whether it's the rise of the developing world, whether it's Europe and Japan catching up to Canada and the United States, you know, building from the post-war rubble, whether it's, you know, the rise of OPEC uh, creating commodity, uh, you know, commodity shortages and or price increases, you know, key, on key things like, like energy. All of these things are forcing a response. But the argument I make is that, you know, some of these things are, 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 are Trudeau really trying to, to Look at a problem that is perhaps real, which is that, you know, things like inflation, for instance. Mm -hmm. But to then say that his solution is politically motivated for other purposes. So when I talk about the inflationary crisis in my book, and I spend, you know, a good chapter and a bit on that. Um, I make the case that, you know, the, the inflationary crisis wasn't necessarily manufactured. Yet Trudeau sought as an opportunity to lower the standard of living and lower the expectations of working people. And so if you look at – and this is the same thing in the United States where Nixon implements wage and price controls. If you look at the gaps where wages and productivity start to, to leave one another, as comp uh, wages and corporate profitability as well, it's in the period where Trudeau starts to implement these controls because the goal was to use the inflationary crisis as a means to lower the expectations of working people. And a lot of – you're right. A lot of the standards of living are, are rising. But some of that isn't related to Trudeau, uh, and, and neither is the budget cost. A lot of these plans are implemented during Pearson's years, but the costs begin to ramp up after. Mm -hmm. And there are also decisions made by his government that limit its ability to actually address the issue. One is that they refuse to index tax levels to inflation, which effectively starves the government as revenue as inflation increases further. That was a John Turner decision to sort of hamstring the federal government's own budget mm -hmm. uh, in the mid-1970s. At the end of the day, how do you see 
Trudeau's thinking. Do you see Trudeau's thinking evolving through his uh, through his years from the time he, uh, as you say, uh, from the time he's at, at Harvard and he's sort of gotten rid of his uh, Zhejiang ideas um, through to his final years, well, let's say through his last political years, do you see an evolution in the thinking of Pierre Trudeau or do you see more signs of stability? I mean, I would say stability. That's the argument of my book, is that Trudeau makes decisions, and, and those decisions are not uniform, but that Trudeau is responding to various political and social and economic and cultural contexts of the various times in which he lived. And, of course, he lived in very interesting times. Even just looking at my period from 45 till his passing, you know, the world changes a lot. The landscape of Canadian politics change a lot. The landscape of global politics change a lot. And so Trudeau at various points and in various ways takes different positions, which is why, for instance, in the 1950s and 60s, he makes the argument that, you know, economic nationalism is bad for the working class. He said it's the worst thing for the working class, that uh, free markets and neoliberalism are the best thing for regular people. Yet in the 1970s, because the politics of the day demand it, he adopts more economic nationalism, where he, you know, he starts to he creates Petro Canada. Right. Some of this is based on the, the pressure of the NDP government, but some of this is just Trudeau looking at the polls and seeing it's what Canadians wanted. Sure. Yet when Trudeau makes these decisions, I think he's always motivated by a kind of small L liberalism and that consistent belief that in private property, in the 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 virtues of capitalism, is ultimately a good thing. Yes. That capitalism was essential to freedom in Canada, mm-hmm. and Trudeau always believed that. And again, at times, he was of the mind that you know capitalism needed to be restrained in a kind of Keynesian sense. Yet right. at other times, he would make the argument that the problem with Canada today is that we we've lost that those common sense values of you know of of before the war, those 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 deeper capitalist values that we need to get back to, that we need smaller government. Workers need to have lower wages. Workers need to work harder. Mm-hmm. Companies need to have less regulations. Trudeau, at times, and without hyperbole, sounded like a Fox News columnist or commentator, <laughs> right? So, some hyperbole. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, well, no, but no, but when Trudeau would say again, he would yes. say. Workers need longer hours, not shorter hours. Because there was a debate in the 1970s starting that, you know, rapid automation is going to have issues. Of course, we're having this debate still today. But he said that one of the solutions is to shorten the work week. um, And then that way the work could be distributed between all the people who are unemployed. And Trudeau would say, well, that's absurd. Canada is is a soft, pudgy society. We need to become leaner and meaner. We need to empower our, 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 our elites to do better, uh, and we need to uh, chastise our workers for, for wanting good social programs and good wages. So he started this, you know, intellectually at least, mm-hmm. this race to the bottom. Mm-hmm. So when Brian Mulroney would become prime minister and when Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin would, would, would rule after Brian Mulroney, and they had this rhetoric of belt tightening and this rhetoric of unleashing our truly great to, to trickle down the wealth, that was Trudeau intellectually priming that pump. You know, he would have a meeting with the, the CLC in the, in the early 1970s, and the CLC would talk about, like, well, why are you giving all of these uh, preferential treatments to business and you're clamping down on wages but not prices? And Trudeau would say, well, you want me to create jobs, don't you? And the way you create jobs is you get out of the way of capital. Adopting a very traditional neoliberal position, mm-hmm. even before 
the rise of formal neoliberalism. CLC, CLC, just to remind our listeners, is the Canadian Labor Congress. Yeah. Um, I guess his his turn towards free trade with the United States, even though it was not him who had consummated, but there certainly was an inclination. There were certainly clues that he was going to be favorable to that idea, wasn't it? Well, it's an interesting position. Trudeau, in general, supported free trade. Again, going back even to the 1950s, mm-hmm. he was of the view that all that protectionism did was protect the the kind of intellectual middle classes, yes. um, and it punished uh, the, the working people who would become captive markets. That was his view. Um, by the 1970s, Trudeau does become a little bit more sympathetic to certain forms of economic nationalism out of political necessity. Also, Nixon's, uh, Nixon's move to sort of kind of cut Canada out of a lot of the preferential post-war. Yes, um, after the Nixon shock of 1971. Yeah, the Nixon shock, of yes. course. That scares Trudeau. Of course, the shock it doesn't end up being as bad as expected, no. but it does sort of lead Trudeau to this idea that perhaps some economic nationalism is needed, perhaps Canada needs to uh, to approach certain things differently, although it did lead Trudeau also to build try to build more uh, trade relations outside of the United yes. States. Yes, but still it revealed him to be a, a continentalist in his views. Yes, no, certainly. But Trudeau would say here, rather interestingly, he said, well, look, he would say to Nixon, if we're going to be protectionist, Canada and the U.S. should be protectionist together. Yes, So yes. Trudeau kind of, he would say that to Nixon in one, I think it was one of the Nixon tapes yes. that that came out, right? Yes. That Trudeau would basically say that, you know, Canada and the United States could be free market, free trade between us two, but protectionist with the rest of the world. Yes. The free trade specifically, I note in my book, or in my dissertation at least, um, Trudeau opposed the specific implementation of the free trade agreement in the late 80s because of the methodology. He felt it was too quick. He also felt that Canada was already on a path towards free trade with mm-hmm. the United States through things like the, you know, the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trades. Right. So I think he opposed that specific initiative, but in general, he was a fan of, of, of market liberalization, yes. We're going to leave it at that. Christo, I uh, really appreciate this interview. I want to thank you for sharing your ideas and insights with me. Thanks for having me. I was speaking with Christo Avalis, who is adjunct professor of history at the Royal Military College. He's just published a study of Pierre Trudeau's thinking, and it's entitled The Constant Liberal, Pierre Trudeau, Organized Labor, and the Canadian Social Democratic Left, published by University of British Columbia Press. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the Society does, including its publications, its blogs, and more about these podcasts. There's even a place to become a member and a sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's history. If you like this stuff, please let people know by using whatever social media you use. It would spread the message, and we'd be really proud of your support. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. My name is Patrice Dutil. This interview was recorded in the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University on April 15, 2019, and it was produced by Hugh Backhurst. Thank you, everybody, and we'll see you next time.